Welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I am Cray Bolger here with Michael Prats. And today we are going to be talking about Peng Block. But before we jump into that, Mike has a really cool case report about patient self-scanning. Mike? Yes, and this is a topic that I've been just looking for an opportunity to discuss, hearkening way back to, I think, the ideas that were put out on our 100th episode. We've talked about patients scanning themselves. And so this is not just a case, it's actually a small study of 19 patients. And the idea is that can patients scan themselves accurately in their homes? And I think a great application of this is patients trying to identify their own pulmonary edema. So this was published in the Journal of Clinical Med, June 2023. Can dialysis patients identify and diagnose pulmonary congestion using self-lung ultrasound? This is out of Israel, 19 patients that are on hemodialysis. They were taught to identify and count their own beelines during one session of hemodialysis, which is kind of a good use of time, I think. And then they measured the agreement between these patients' clips and a researcher's clips. And they also included the use of AI to auto-count the beelines. Again, this is a great use of technology. You teach the patients how to do it, and then you also have AI that helps them count those beelines and standardizes it a little bit more. The results of this study were that the patients' counts did not significantly correlate with the standard, the expert reviewing and performing their own scan. The patients were able to obtain their own images, though, and 70% of those were rated good or excellent quality. And then in subsequent sessions, it did go down in quality a little bit, but looked pretty good in terms of their retention of skill. There was a correlation between the expert and the patient's AI auto beeline count. So what I take from this is this is a really interesting area for future research. It may not have panned out perfectly, but especially with AI applications growing, maybe combining that with patients doing their ultrasounds at home. And that is a really cool idea for the future. I agree, Mike. This is super cool. It's like ultrasound is the new adult fidget spinner. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Keeps people busy while they're bored. Very cool study. And I think there's actually some newer studies that would support this. There was one that just came out about online guided lung ultrasound and how it did really well and actually did better than in-person ultrasound training. So perhaps make a tutorial video for your patients, have them watch it and go to town. Yeah. And of course, you have to figure out how to get your patients an ultrasound and maybe that could be cost prohibitive in a lot of places. But, you know, the sky's the limit with these now smaller, more affordable ultrasounds. So maybe that's another solution. All right. So, Cray, kick us back to the pang block. I've been dying to talk about this. I love the pang block. So we are going to talk about the effectiveness of Capsular nerve group block, also known as the pang block, with ultrasound in patients diagnosed with hip fracture in the emergency room. This is from the Turkish Journal of Trauma and Emergency Surgery. As Mike pointed out, this is a really old article from June 2022. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's all relative. Yes. And so we're going to jump right in. So, Mike, do you want to talk to us a little bit about the pang block? Yeah, I know. Cray, you, me, Jalen, everybody associated with this show really likes nerve blocks. I mean, it's clear that it's the future in pain control. 
And as ultrasound leaders, and even if you're not an ultrasound leader, you're well poised to perform this type of procedure to really help your patients. And so the pang block is a really nice idea that comes in the footsteps of fascia iliaca blocks or femoral nerve blocks because I think the chief application is going to be for proximal femur fractures and also, as we'll talk about, some other types of pelvic fractures. Well, the idea behind the pang block and why I think it caught on pretty quickly in the emergency department is because it was invented to be motor sparing. So basically, it gets all of the fibers that are going to the hip joint itself, but not getting that femoral nerve, which is going to cause a lot of your thigh muscle weaknesses. So the idea is you can treat their pain without inhibiting their ability to move around and participate in physical therapy, usually after they get their operation. So the question is, I, I know a lot of anesthesiologists are already doing this for a lot of hip surgeries, but the question is, how does this work in the emergency department for patients that have pain from their acute hip fracture? And before we go on, we have to make a quick distinction because it turns out there's also now a shoulder pang block. When we are saying pang block in this whole podcast, we're talking about just hip pang blocks. Yep. So the question in the study was, is the pang block effective in controlling pain from a hip fracture in the emergency department. So as we mentioned before, this was a study done out of Turkey. It was an academic hospital with 200,000 visits a year, um, about 350 hip fractures a year. So in the U.S., just as a point of comparison, we typically see about six times that amount of hip fractures per year. So if you aren't sure if this is relevant to you, it is. You will be seeing these patients on any given day. And um, I think we often find that these are complicated patients to manage pain on. They rarely is it your healthy 20-year-old who's breaking their hip. It's typically a patient with comorbidities, typically of advanced age. And so they're not the patients you just want to be plugging with opioids. In addition to that, you know, we are constantly seeking out opioid alternatives given the opioid epidemic in the U.S. So who was included in the study? The patient obviously had to have a hip fracture. Point one, and they had to be diagnosed on x-ray or CAT scan. Um, they had to be in the emergency department. They had to be conscious. They had to be an adult and no prior opioids. Exclusion criteria, they could not be hemodynamically unstable, which I think is a point to chat about. They could not have any infection or other overlying skin changes that would affect the injection site. They could ha have renal failure, bleeding disorder, neurologic disease psychiatric disease, be allergic to local anesthetic, or be too little or too big. So it was like a Goldilocks study, if you will. So Mike, do you want to tell us a little bit about the study? <laughs> I would love to. I think those are really important inclusion and exclusion criteria to keep in mind when doing any nerve block, really, because it's, to me, just a reminder of some things I should consider if I'm about to do a nerve block. For instance, is the patient conscious, which is important because then they would be able to tell you if you're doing something you're not supposed to, for example, like injecting straight into a nerve bundle, which we try to avoid. And, you know, if they are on anticoagulants or if they're really light or really heavy, you might have to make adjustments to how you do the procedure or the dosage of the procedure. And I think they were trying to really standardize it in this study. So let's get into the design. Single center, randomized prospective study. So far, I love it. 
All the patients had motor and nerve examinations before the pang block, another good practice. And what happened is they came in, they got randomized to either the pang group or medical treatment group. Now the medical treatment group, which will serve as the control group, they all got 1,000 milligrams of paracetamol. We'll call it paracetamol for this study, but I think we all know in our hearts it's called acetaminophen. <laughs> and then also they got 100 milligrams of IV tramadol every eight hours. That was a little odd to me because that's very different from how I practice. I don't even know if we have IV tramadol, but apparently that's pretty standard in this emergency department. So they could get 1,000 milligrams of Tylenol every six hours and 100 milligrams of IV tramadol every eight hours. That's the control group. And then in that group, if they didn't respond to those, they could also get additional opioids. If you got randomized into the PANG group, you got a PANG block with bupivacaine, and the outcomes that they were looking for comparing these two groups were pain control rated on a numeric rating scale, where zero is no pain and 10 is the most severe pain possible. And the physician who was doing these blocks was blinded to the pain scores. They got the pain score before the procedure and after the procedure. Now, there's a little bit of intricacy to their protocol here because if the pain was minimal and they defined that as less than four, then they did not give any analgesia. So that means if they were in pain, but it was less than four on that scale, that did not trigger them to provide any more pain medicine in either group. Importantly, the treatment team, including the orthopedic team, was also blinded to the group. And what they measured as far as their outcomes were not just the baseline and then directly after the block, but also 30 minutes after and then several other time points up to 24 hours afterwards. And they did those pain scales both at rest and with passive range of motion. They actually elevated that limb a little bit to see if that would evoke worse pain. Then they monitored their vital signs, looked for any symptoms of complications like last, and when they did their power analysis, they estimated they needed 36 subjects. They didn't explicitly say their primary outcome, which I'm always looking for in these studies. What are they really shooting to figure out here? But it seems to be, if I were to read between the lines here, that they are looking for a comparison between the pain group and the control group at these various pain score time points after the blocks were done. So, Cray, tell us a little bit more about the scan, who was doing it, yeah, so these were what I would consider experts based on the way they described it who were doing the scan. So they were either emergency medicine with specific nerve block training or anesthesia um, faculty. They used the linear probe, which I think is something to talk about. Um, perhaps their patients are very different than ours, um, but that would not be feasible. Um, and they did the ping block, which we will include in the show notes, by placing the probe near the anterior inferior iliac spine and the pubic ramus. And we're going down to the IPE, the iliopubic eminence, and dropping their anesthetic just underneath the psoas tendon at that iliopubic eminence. And they used 20 milliliters of 0.25% bupivacaine to be injected into that region. Yeah. And I think like you brought up, Cray, I like to use the curvilinear probe too, because when you're doing this block, and we'll have to drop some sort of image or link to something so you can see what we're talking about. But if you've never done this block before, it's again a plain block, so you don't actually see a nerve. You just see the psoas tendon that you're targeting. And I like to keep my eye on that femoral artery and that femoral nerve during this process just to make sure that the anesthetic is not going near those structures because you're trying to avoid that because it's motor sparing. 
So what did they find, Craig? So they enrolled 39 patients, which if you remember, their goal was 36. Um, about a third of these were female. As we sort of alluded to earlier, they were primarily geriatric patients with a mean age of 75.3 years old. Usually these were for femoral head and intertrochanteric fractures. They did 18 paying blocks, and then they had 21 patients in the control group. They did try to match them as much as they could uh, for similar demographics. However, the control group had a little bit more on the cardiac comorbidities. Six patients were excluded because they did not have research staff to perform the blocks. Their baseline pain, which we've kind of assumed is part of their primary outcomes, there was no difference at rest, but with passive leg motion up to 15 degrees, the pain group did have slightly higher pain at baseline. And then their outcomes were that the pain block was superior at all time points, and especially the longer into the stay, which I think is a really important discussion point. I think this could have been even more impactful, and we'll talk about why. But the pain group had statistically significant p-values of pain reduction at all time points. So the ones they recorded were 30 minutes, one hour, two hours, four hours, six hours, 12 hours, and 24 hours. And I think that's really great. Um, I think it validates all of our clinical experience for those of us who do these on a pretty regular basis. Some of you may be saying that's cool and great and whatever, but I don't have the time to do this. One thing they did measure was how long it took them to perform the block, a mean time of five minutes, including cleaning and prepping for the procedure. So from the time you thought about it till the time it was complete was five minutes or on average. Two of the 18 patients did require additional pain medication, but they only got that pain medication if their score was greater than four and the pain medicine they got was paracetamol. So they weren't even getting opioids when they did require additional medication. Um, there were no complications, so no last syndrome, no bleeding, no infection that was documented. And patient satisfaction was about 72%. I think that's something that we're not quite clear on how they were measuring, what questions they were asking. Is that overall patient satisfaction or just with the block itself? Yeah, and these are so impressive because if you remember that at the baseline, the pain group started out a little bit at a disadvantage. They had higher baseline scores. And yet still, when you look at table two in this article, which shows all the pain scores at each of these hour markings, you can just see that the pain group is, is winning by like large margins at most of these checkpoints. There's really only one. The second hour score at rest where there's no significant difference, but all of the rest of these like 20 time points were in favor of the pain group. And so for example, like if you look up to the 24 hour mark, the control group, which is just getting these medications, their pain score has gone back up to seven out of 10, whereas the pain group is still down at 2.44. And that's pretty impressive. And that's with movement but even at rest, the pain group at 24 hours, 1.28 pain score compared to five in the control group. So these are pretty impressive differences in my book. Yeah, I agree. Um, and we all know we, many of us who work clinically aren't fans of the pain scores, but I think in this case is super helpful. And I think the fact that the only additional pain medication they were getting was essentially Tylenol or acetaminophen 
that's really impressive. That tells me that these patients are pretty well controlled. It may also be a difference in clinical practice, which I think is something Mike alluded to earlier with the fact that IV tramadol was the drug of choice for severe pain. That's not necessarily consistent with a lot of our clinical practice in the United States. One thing I think that could even have enhanced the impact of this article was the volume and percentage of bupivacaine that was being used is a little bit on the lower side from what I think a lot of people's standard practices. I typically will use at least 30 mLs total volume um, and at least a half to 1% bupivacaine. And I also will typically add decadron in with my block, which will propagate the duration of action. And in small studies has shown to actually amplify the effect of the analgesia. So I'm wondering if we could have even seen a bigger impact with that type of modified protocol. Yeah, there was a lot of things that they did well and some other things that maybe we could have changed. I think the strengths are that they did a power analysis and they met that. It may seem like a small population, but it was nice that they figured out this was enough to answer their research question. I like that they assessed both pain at rest and pain with movement because that's a classic argument that people make for not needing nerve blocks in patients is like you look at them, they're really comfortable, they don't want to undergo this procedure perhaps, so you you defer the nerve block and then like two seconds later, orthopedics is in there getting all sorts of x-rays and manipulating it and the patient's howling in agony. And I think that at this point, a lot of people that advocate for nerve blocks will just advocate for doing it based on the indication. Like if they have a painful hip fracture, they should probably just get a nerve block. It's probably going to benefit them in the long run. Yeah. Some other things I think that I personally saw room for improvement with some of the exclusion criteria. I understand their desire to do so from a standardization, but we know we're not going near a vessel. So bleeding disorders for me aren't a hard stop um, on these patients. I'm not going into any sensitive compartment. I'm using a fairly small needle. Again, I'm not going near vasculature. So I don't use that as an absolute contraindication. I also thought it was interesting that they use dementia as an exclusion criteria. I find in a lot of these patients, especially our demented patients, they have a really hard time articulating that they're in pain um, and they can appear agitated. They can have vital sign abnormalities and people don't often jump to pain as the reason for that. Um, and the patient's not articulating it. So I understand from a patient satisfaction and their ability to score their pain that they may have skewed the data, but I think that patient population is actually one that can benefit a lot from these blocks, especially if there is someone there to consent. In regards to the renal failure, I think this is something we always encourage with our providers is using an app like Safe Local, where you can just modify your dosing for renal failure, that that also should not be an absolute contraindication. Similarly, I also don't use weight as a contraindication. If I can find the target and I have a needle big enough to get there, go for it. Yeah, that's a good point. There was a couple other things that gave me a little bit of pause about this. It might be a small point, but based on their protocol, it looks like the control group didn't get any pain medication if their pain score was not above four. So you can imagine that they're sitting at a three level, no interventions are happening. That might favor the pain group in terms of a benefit. It would have been nice to know a little bit more about these outcomes, especially the ones that seemed so relevant to why they were doing the study. For example, did they get any motor paralysis in the pang block group? We're assuming not since they said there was no complications, but it would have been good to be explicit about that. And how about the amount of medications that were required in the control group? Did they get tons and tons of tramadol? Did they get opioids on top of that? That's not really mentioned in this paper. 
one other thing we know is, and that wasn't documented here, is time from fracture to pain control. I think that would be an interesting thing to include, which should be a pretty easy data point to get. With the intention being, we know that the longer someone sits in pain, the harder their pain is to control and that the more likely they are to have chronic pain and poorly controlled acute pain. So that's another data point I would have loved to see that seems pretty easy to gather is time from injury to initial pain control, because that could skew the data in favor of one group if they had a longer wait time to their first analgesic. Now, Cray, you know that as I am meticulously scrutinizing these articles, sometimes my eyes go to interesting linguistic choices, especially since we're reading articles that are done all around the world. And in this article, I just have to share as an interesting point, they wrote that at one point, patient satisfaction was inquired, E-N-Q-I-R-E-D. And in the U.S., I think we would use the word inquired with an I in that instance. So I did some digging into this, and there is a difference between an inquiry and an enquiry. It's most commonly employed in the U.K., I guess. But apparently, an inquiry is a slightly more formal version than an enquiry. So keep that in mind if you're using those and inquiring minds want to know. So perhaps national enquire is the wrong terminology because there's nothing formal about that. <laughs> That's right. So Cray, to wrap this up, I think both of us, I don't want to, I don't know about saying advocate because that is really dependent on your local practice and how you've worked it out with all your different departments and consultants. But I think that there's enough evidence that if you feel comfortable doing pang blocks, it seems like it could benefit your patients. What's your take, Cray? Absolutely. Um, Anecdotally and evidence-wise, I think that there's a huge benefit. There's a reduced opioid volume there, which also leads to reduced complications, which they didn't really look at in their control group from what I could see. But That's something I always think about is not just is my nerve block dangerous, but is the alternate thing I'm doing dangerous. And we know, especially geriatric patients who don't metabolize things well, who typically have a lesser tolerance, their complication rates are much higher. Their adverse respiratory events, their escalations of care, you know, especially in light of renal and liver failure. Like it's not as the pain block safe, I would say, is the alternative treatment safe. And in this case, I'd say no, in which case, I'm not even doing a non-inferiority study. I'm saying this is superior and our standard of care probably shouldn't be that anymore. Well said. So to summarize this study, this was a prospective single-setter randomized controlled trial of 39 emergency department patients with hip fractures. Compared to the control group of IV paracetamol and tramadol, the PANG block group had superior pain control at nearly all the time points out to 24 hours. So our take-home points for this article are that number one, the pain block provides excellent analgesia both at rest and with small movement for emergency department patients with proximal femur fractures. Two, the pain block group had lower pain scores than this particular medication protocol control group, which is important to know exactly what they compared it to, and the pain group required less medications. Lastly, although there were no complications reported in this study, Additional studies addressing safety are still needed given the small sample size and the expertise of this proceduralist. 
So that wraps up another episode of Ultrasound Gel. Thanks for joining us. And you know what? I haven't said this for a while, but if you wouldn't mind giving us a five-star rating down at the podcast store, wherever you get your podcasts, that would help us out and be more visible to other people interested in learning about ultrasound. Otherwise, you can find the show notes and check out more about our show at ultrasoundgel.org. Until next time, we will talk to you later. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. That's a pretty good pun. Lastly, you get it?